Welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we unpack the big political stories of the week. My name is Mike Siluma. The top news stories we're looking at this week are the local government crisis of the back of the Auditor General report, and we ask if this does not signify the beginning of a failed state. That will be followed by a focus on the land exploitation bill, which is currently the subject of heated debate in Parliament. This aircon is racist. I've never ever been a spy. Can the PBS bank uh, loot The problem is that pinky. I'll never subject myself to whiteness. I'm listening. Can you have consistency, Honorable Chair? Corruption was an Olympic sport. They will always win gold. This is not a arms, Can you please come in? Let's welcome now my guest for this week's conversation, William Kumete, who's the Associate Professor in the School of Governance at the University of Witwatersrand, as well, of course, as Andy Siwe Makinana, who's a parliamentary correspondent based in Cape Town. Prof, let, let me start with you. This year, we're having local government elections, and yet parallel to that, we seem to be getting this bad news that most of the of, of the local governments uh, seem to be failing to provide the services that they you know they ought to be providing to to citizens. Let's start almost at an existential level, you know, for local government. What was the original thinking behind having so many different local government entities in in, in our constitutional dispensation? And thank you. Um, I'm happy to be to be back with you. You know, our constitutional framers, um, when they put together, um, you know, the structure of, of, of government, their focus was on the local sphere, municipalities, making it a coal face of delivery where all of the delivery take place. Um, you know, where it's providing um, sanitation, provide, providing water, um, power, um, and so and so on. I mean, that really was the idea. Now, the reality, sadly, is that we now the cold face of delivery is has failed. I mean, you know, when people talk about a failed state, uh, the failed state is specifically at a municipal, municipal and at the city level. People seem, you know, when, when we talk about a failed state, people think that everything must be collapsed at all at the same time. You know, a failed state, um, they, that's one kind of failed state, but I think we've got a different kind of failed state. Our failed state is where parts of the state has actually failed totally. Uh, and I think we can call that a failed state also. So, you know, parts of the state is working. It's almost like in places like Argentina, you know, that's how, where we should compare ourselves, where parts of the state actually work, um, but in other parts of the state has actually failed. I mean, we would have been a fully blown failed state if it was not for a, you know, for a working private sector. So the private sector is actually rescuing us from total collapse because the private sector increasingly are providing services, whether it is you know, education, um, whether it is security, whether it is health. So the private sector has been providing public service, so to speak. And if the private sector had not um, uh, provided that, we would have been totally a failed state. But it is it is the private sector providing to those who can who can afford to pay, which is a, a minority of the population. 
Unfortunately, that's the reality. So the private sector is providing for you know a small elite, a small minority of the population, and the large majority of the population are excluded. They have to face the failed states. Unfortunately, you know, lack of work, proper clean water, um, lack of um, you know power, lack of roads, lack of security, because you know they don't they don't have the money to buy private public services. Let, let's try and get into the 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 back end, if you like, of 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 local authority. The Auditor General this week says uh, five billion rand given to twenty two municipalities cannot be accounted for because the books are in such a terrible state. Nobody knows actually where the money went. Are you shocked by that? Um, sadly, I'm not shocked. Of course, disappointed, but not shocked because you know that's been a pattern. Um, I mean, if you look at the last decade, every year it's getting worse. I mean, there are many, many interventions, uh, but it just seems that interventions are not working. And I, you know, the way I look at it, the reason why interventions are not working is that we are not holding the mayors, the councillors, and the senior managers of municipalities personally liable for financial losses and for bankruptcy and for corruption and for, for waste. Only if we hold them accountable in their personal capacities, I think, will we see a turnaround in the local government's sphere. The Auditor General talks about is- issuing certificates, basically in cases of, of gross non-compliance, you know, by these uh, city managers and mayors and, and, and such like, the accountable people, to hold them personally liable, as you seem to be alluding to. But will will that work? You know, if if for example the the five billion that has disappeared, there's one mayor where money meant for PPEs was used to buy him a car. You know, so by the time you get there, then the auditor general gets that the money, at least much of the money, might have been misused or gone or stolen. So so, but if if you then subsequently only subsequently hold the guys personally liable, will that be enough? compensation for the citizenry? You know, I think so. So, um, you know, if you hold people personally accountable, um, yes, you, you know, by the time sometimes the money will be gone or, uh, you know, the assets uh, um, will be reduced in value. But if, you know, just the point, if we can get the first people and hold them accountable, seize their assets, return it back to the fiscus, uh, prosecute them, it will also serve as a deterrent for others um, not to do it. I mean, I think the bigger problem really is that South Africa's current regulations to put failing municipalities under administration is fundamentally flawed. Unfortunately, it's fundamentally flawed because, you know, um, they do not hold councillors and senior managers fully accountable. Um, and also, um, they do not recover. We, we don't have the mechanism to recover losses personally from incompetent or corrupt and wasteful councillors and, and, and city managers. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, so the constitution actually make provision um, to put municipalities which are in financial under administration and then the constitution recommends that um, um, uh, administrations are appointed to, to run them. Um, but these provisions have become very flawed because many, we've seen in many of the interventions, I'll give you a clear example, you know, the Mangawung uh, Metro, um, it uh, fell and it was put under administration in 2019 after financial governance and service delivery failures. But two years after the intervention, I mean, the metro still remains dysfunctional. Yeah. Now, the reason it is the case is that 
Firstly, often, you know, these when when these interventions are introduced, it's often not consistent. And when I say consistent, what I what I mean by it is the, the constitution says if it's under administration, then the whole council must be totally disbanded. And then there must be new elections called. Now, if you look at all of the interventions so far, none of them have actually gone through that. Um, we've like Mangohung um, is, is you know one of the, the, those ex examples. It um, the council was not disbanded. The city manager is still um, there um, in office. Um, administrators have been appointed, um, but the council is still there. No one is being held accountable. Why is that, Prof? Because it seems to, to an outsider, to a layperson, it might look like the logical thing to do, the necessary thing to do. That the law is there. All you have to do is to implement what the law you know, is asking of you. You know, unfortunately, what, what is happening here is that ANC you know, uh, uh, councils are not being disbanded because, you know, the ANC wants to protect, um, you know, the, the councillors um, so that they don't lose their jobs in any um, The interesting point, you know, in, in, in the one case so far where um, an, a, a metro has been put under administration uh, because it was uh, financially bankrupt. It was, you know, the Swanee municip municipality at the beginning of 2020. And it was uh, put under administration really um, because it was a DA-run administration. And then the ANC wanted to get the DA out of, you know, out of running uh, the administration. And the ANC then called for elections within 90 days. But then the DA, of course, went to court and the court said, you know, um, the intervention was done in a biased way um, and that it was not really genuine. Um, so in, in many other uh, um, interventions by provinces to deal with failing municipalities is often where you see ANC, one ANC faction is part of the province and they want to get out another faction um, in a municipality. Um, so again, you know, it's really not because of accountability. Um, and then the second thing for me is the fact that, um, you know, the councillors who are responsible for the failure and the city managers who are responsible remain in their jobs. You know, if we stay at the back end of these councils as to how, how they work, what, what would you say is the cause of the, of the failure to perform? You know, when, when, a, when a council is not able to provide clean water or lights or fix the roads, you know, like happened in Lachtenberg now, where they are now losing you know, uh, where a whole lot of citizens are going to be losing their jobs because the council is not doing what it's supposed to do and the employer is deciding to relocate elsewhere. What, what, what is causing all these problems in the councils? Because clearly this, this is an endemic problem. It's not a, 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 a one-town problem. I mean, the, the costs are very real. I mean, you know, if, just think about it. Between 2000 and 2001, there was a cholera epidemic um, in um, rural KwaZulu Natal. Now, the reason why they call it a, uh, there was a cholera outbreak was, you know, that those rural um, municipalities could not deliver water and people were forced to drink water from the rivers, like in the old days. And, you know, they picked up cholera and many people died. So, you know, you see how real that is. So, so lack of delivery actually caused a disaster. Cholera was called a disaster, an outbreak. And then if you think about Lichtenberg, now what we're seeing is that many, um, Local businesses, big businesses that provide jobs to locals are actually leaving. Um, they're moving um, either to other towns, but sadly, many of them leave to other countries. 
Um, and then we have unemployment. Uh, people lose their jobs. But, you know, those are the big businesses we're talking about. So, you know, we talk about, you know, what about the small businesses that go bust? Um, because, you know, there's no, there's no services, there's no water, um, there's, uh, um, there's no power, there's so much red tape, um, they can't even operate. So, you know, these are deadly on the one end and costly for jobs and for growth in the country. Well, what about the issue of skills and, and managerial uh, expertise, you know? The, 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 do we have anything like that in, in many of these councils? You know, so the real issue why these municipalities are not functioning and which unfortunately in all of these interventions um, are, not, are never addressed is the fact that municipalities has now become patronage place, a place where, you know, for ANC cadres to be employed. And most of them are not employed because they have the necessary skills. You know, it just becomes a job creation. And secondly, also it becomes sort of a... a a patronage system from a from a business point of view. You know, the contracts that you get get um, from a municipality goes to those politically connected to the ANC faction uh, or to the ANC itself. And what we're having uh, at the local government level now is a really bloated public service, but a public service without the necessary skills. Those were skills are being pushed out unless they, of course, are connected, you know, to the ANC or to the local faction um, of the ANC. And then the same with the contracts. The contracts often go to uh, not necessarily to political companies. So not so political capitalists, not really people with the business skills, but people who set up um, uh, because of a tender. We did now during the COVID-19, you know, the PPE companies, most of those companies never existed before COVID-19, it was set up specifically to benefit um, from the contracts. Now, you know, if you have those sort of things, so you have no skills, um, but you've got an overpopulation of people working there with no skills. So, you know, the cost structure of municipalities then becomes unsustainable, but at the same time, you also don't get the competency because, you know, that's not the right skills. So uh, it's, I mean, just look at a model of our municipalities, uh, bloated um, staff without the skills, no little, very little technical skills. So the cost goes to, you know, to staff who are not competent. Um, and then you have the delivery of services to companies that are not competent, that don't deliver the services. I mean, it is a lose-lose situation for ordinary citizens. If we look at the economics of our local government system, how sustainable are they? Because it seems to me that we've got quite a lot of them. And on the face of it, some of them actually should not be like independent municipalities. Absolutely. So the problem is actually we have to really look at the system itself. I mean, I did a report um, if, for government, uh, the State of the Cities report in 2016, which came out and we looked at five years of sort of, you know, of, of, of municipalities of looking at how they operated between 2016 uh, and 2011. And what came out quite clear, some municipalities should not be municipalities. Um, you know, they, you know, we could call them something else, but they should not have councils and they must, shouldn't have public services because they cannot generate revenue. You know, you can't have a municipality where you can't generate revenue. And actually, the ironic, uh, the, the ironic point here is that when you look at the last local government elections, most of the municipalities in the country that the ANC won are those municipalities that, that doesn't generate revenue, that needs revenue from the national fiscus. 
And in most of the municipalities, um, they actually generate revenue, have actually been um, won by the opposition, whether the DA or whether it's IFP or whether uh, in coalition. And that is across the country. Um, um, that's the case. But I mean, the bigger story here is that we have to think of closing down some of these municipalities, incorporating them as units of a bigger part of, you know, the bigger metros. Okay, let's go to the other topic, you know, that, that we're looking at this week, which is the, the contentious uh, issue of land expropriation bill. We were joined now uh, by Andy Siwe, uh, who's been listening quietly, politely, uh, waiting to, to, to butt in. And so you, you've been watching, and, and welcome, you've, you've been watching the debate uh, around the land expropriation bill in parliament and elsewhere. How far has that process gone? Because it seems to be to have gone on for a very long time without much, you know, generating lots of heat in public hearings and all of that, but actually very little light in, for, for the general public. How, how far is that process right now? Good afternoon. From Iken, good afternoon to the prof. It's been over three years since the National Assembly adopted the motion uh, to establish an ad hoc committee that would investigate how do, do, do legislators uh, amend Section 25 of the Constitution. But my own assessment, it feels like we are exactly back where we started in February 2018. And I'm saying this because um, at the moment, there seems to be a standoff on the issue of um, a state custodianship of land, where the EFF and the ANC have a, maybe a different interpretation of what that means. And actually, when you go back to February 2018, when this motion was adopted, if you remember what Julius Malema presented this motion to the House. And in supporting the motion, the ANC brought its own amendment. And today we are at the point where the two parties that need each other for this thing to go through are at the motion that was tabled by Julius before the ANC said, we will support you, but let's amend ABC. So that's where it is, that's where they are stuck and I find it funny that uh, people like President Mbegin, people like Trevor Manuel last night are now talking about this thing. And I feel like maybe if they'd spoken to the ANC in February 2018 before this motion was put through, maybe- Yeah, you know, you know, Andy, I would like us to come back to the, to the, the, the latter point you're raising about uh, people like Trevor Mbegin and Trevor Manuel joining in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the debate. But before that, I, yeah, I wanted us to clarify the point that you're making earlier. You're saying that initially the motion was tabled by the EFF. Then the ANC supported the EFF with some conditionalities, and now they can't agree. What, what, what is the difference? I mean, what, what, what is the crux of their disagreement? Okay, if I take you back to the EFF's original motion, which actually hasn't changed uh, considering where we are today, Julius Malemas, when he spoke in the House that day, he spoke about how this is no longer about reconciliation. The issue of land is no longer the time for, I think he said the time for reconciliation is over. Now it's time for justice. And this, this for me, it's all, the, the whole thing is very political because the impression out there is once you've got expropriation without compensation, 
people will suddenly start getting land back. And it also is, uh, the, the, the messaging is that this is about social redress. This is about addressing apartheid injustices, right? That's why, that, that's why I, I find it so popular amongst those who support it and those who support uh, the faction in the ANC that supports uh, this call and those who support the EFF. It's about uh, dealing with what happened in the past. It's about redress, basically. That's the messaging from the EFF. So Julius did say that uh, we don't care about discussions on food security or economic development, give us land first and everything else will come later. Now, at its conference in Nazareth, the ANC, when it adopted this resolution on expropriation without compensation, it said it did have a, a, a qualifying provision that said, but you must consider food security. You must consider the impact on other sectors. So that is where we are, where the EFF says the state must own the land, right? That's what um, they are saying when they are talking about uh, custodianship of the, of the land, state custodianship of the land. And the ANC, it's not what the ANC adopted, it's not what the ANC said. The ANC, even today, depending on who you speak to in the ANC, the ANC's interpretation of this custodianship is it sounds like for them, it's like an, an administrative, it's like it's an interim administrative step uh, in between, you know, expropriation and the ultimate distribution of the land, mm-hmm. which is exactly completely different from what the EFF is calling for. So the talks that may happen between the two parties are going to be extremely crucial because. From where we are, they are like at polar opposites. They are not even close to each other. How much time do they have, Andy Seven, to find each other and not be at polar opposites? Um, but Mike, this is South Africa. Deadlines mean absolutely nothing in government. <laughs> if you are not in journalism, they mean nothing. Except in journalism. <laughs> or if you are not a, a professor who has to submit, you know? <laughs> Because I can't even, I mean, gosh, they were given a deadline in 2018 to do this thing. Obviously, I mean, um, uh, constitutional amendments, those processes are much longer than your normal uh, amendment of a bill or of of a law. So it was obviously going to take longer. But this has been three and a half years in the making. Um, The committee took uh, quite some time to actually take off. And, and start doing their work. And once they started with the public hearings, going to every province, to every corner of the country, then COVID-19 happened. So that sort of halted the process. And it took quite some time for them to get back on um, to complete that process. I mean, they couldn't really do it uh, virtually. Like, you know, we've seen a mm. lot of meetings. A lot of South Africa still is not connected. So they had to wait for the uh, the latter stages of the lockdown um, uh, uh, restrictions. So we are at a point now where I guess towards the end of the of the of the drafting of the amen, 18th amendment of the constitution but this point where we are at and that's why we've been hearing 
Julia's and some people in the ANC talk about having talks to find each other because I think they are, the, the differences are huge, but um, we are towards the end. I, I think once they sort out and find each other on this one, the National Assembly should be able to pass this bill before the end of this year. Okay. Now, the, the other thing is that they, they, they more for the motion to pass, it would need, what, 75% between, uh, which looks like between the ANC and the EFF, they can master. Yes, uh, that's something that I've just learned in, in late in life that it may have to be seventy five percent because it's a it's it's the section two of the constitution, the Bill of Rights. Yeah. So yes, so the ANC absolutely needs the EFF if this thing is going to go through, and that is why those talks again that they may have uh, because. I think they were scheduled for this week and it's not clear why they didn't go ahead. That's why I don't know what, uh, at what space are we at now. Yeah. But yes, those talks would be very important for this thing to go through. Prof, I, I want you to come in now. You know, from what Andy Siwe is saying, it's like people who want, people wanting to get into a marriage, but they're not quite sure what kind, what kind of marriage is going to be, but they're actually very keen for it to happen quite quick. Yeah. I think the first thing is, I mean, I had... Um, in 2017, I did a report for the ANC um, on looking at access to land reform. And we looked at three countries, uh, look at three countries out in Tanzania um, and uh, Zimbabwe. Now, Alge Algeria did a land reform where the state took all of the land. And Algeria, for 40 years since the land reform, the economy hasn't recovered. They, Africa's biggest importer of food. Um, you know, it knocked their land reform, um, knocked the markets, and they never, the economy never recovered. Tanzania went the other way uh, also. They also went for full state uh, ownership of the land. Um, they even even took communal land and, and put it under control. Um, you know, 20 years thereafter, the economy also crashed totally. That Tanzania in 1982 uh, actually set up their own commission where they declared publicly the land reform without expropriation failed miserably and should never, ever be repeated anywhere in Africa. Now, that's Tanzania and Julius Nyerere. Um, uh, Zimbabwe, of course, I mean, you know, uh, Robert Mugabe in 20, which is in uh, 2015, um, asked, uh, as a, he addressed uh, the Women's League of, of ZANU-PF, the ruling party there, and he said, people, members of ZANU-PF told them people are starving because, you know, in 2015, 2014, um, sixty percent of Zimbabwean of Zimbabwe's in the rural areas were starving, and they had to get food aids from China and from uh, the World Food Program. And he said, "But I've given you land. What's your problem? Why are you starving?" Um, so you know, these are uh, the, uh, examples. And the most successful land reform that the world has ever seen happened in Japan after the Second World War, and it was really they focused on. Um, on compensation, so, so they linked it to work compensation, and they did it that way, not because they really, from a compromise point of view, but to protect the economy and to protect the markets and protect perception, um, and not to crash their own economy. So I think that really is the grown-up lessons. We have to be pragmatic, we have to be practical. We can't use land reform to solve all of our problems. I mean, you know, 
these days um, in the way our economy work, we've just talked about a failure of municipalities, um, you know, lack of um, growth in the country. There's nothing to do with land reform. Um, land reform, if, even if we have the land reform, um, uh, without ex compensation, if we have a land reform without compensation, what we will see, our economy will crash in the same way um, that the Algerian economy and the Tanzanian economy and the Zimbabwean economy, it takes about 30, 40 years to recover from a land reform that has failed. I mean, 40, we just have to imagine it, 40 years um, to recover. Um, so we'll just make our issues worse. Mm. And Suwe, you, you, you were talking earlier about uh, Tabombeki and Trevor Manuel's uh, intervention. Is, is this the point that they are trying to make? Yes, I think what Professor just said is exactly what they were saying. Um, it's what uh, Trevor Manuel was saying last night. And actually, he quoted a study done by the University of Stellenbosch, which um, they, they tried to measure the, the achievements of the NDP, uh, especially the chapter. Well, they did all the chapters. But on the chapter on land reform, they found out actually South Africa isn't doing that badly. They've sort of achieved 67% of their targets. Uh, so uh, out, out of the 23.3 um, million hectares of land, 15.5 uh, million has been uh, either uh, redistributed to the people sold. But I mean, he says it's actually not even as urgent as mm. it is made out to be. Prof, have, have you at any point come across an outline of what South Africa's land ownership would look like once the, this bill, let, let's say the bill goes through, and then suddenly there's a more explicit provision to expropriate a land without compensation. What would South Africa then look like? How, how much better or worse would we be? You know, if the bill is approved and if the bill is expropriation without compensation, what we will see is, you know, the, the currency crash, uh, South African land crash, and we, we may see a crash, uh, mostly the worst crash that we've ever seen. Um, the uh, second thing we will see immediate, I, I, I think, um, uh, uh, criticism um, from around the world. Um, thirdly, we'll see a, an outflux immediately of, of investment, of, you know, existing investment, uh, but also, uh, uh, um, you know, potential investors that will come here will not come. So we immediately will see a halt on investment. We'll see a flight of skills um, immediately, you know, um, people who are not even in the farming area uh, uh, um, sectors, you know, they'll get such a fright, um, professional skills that they will leave. And I, I think, uh, you know, unemployment then after that will really drop all of our efforts that we've been trying to recover from COVID-19 uh, will just go down in, you know, in just in one. And, and this way, having heard all of this, you know, do, do you think, I mean, there is what the, the prof is talking about now, uh, there, there are the interventions by by the likes of Tabumbeki and Trevor Manuel, uh, and of course, other other people generally, you know, in 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 in, in the country. Do you think that there is there is still room for for the two, shall, shall I call them the champions of the bill, to change their minds, or do you think that it's a it's a it's a lost cause? You know, the the horse has bolted. It's going to be very interesting because uh, you can never tell with the ANC. So the president, when he addressed the media the last time, which is about two or three weeks ago, 
he did indicate that he disagreed with this position of the EFF. He spoke about how exactly what the prof has said, the impact it would have on the economy. So really, I I can't tell. I don't know how is this thing going to go. Uh, I doubt that, because even the ANC's own resolution doesn't take things that far, you know, to have a state ownership of the land. So I don't know on what grounds would the ANC ponder to the EFF and agree to what the EFF is proposing. It's going really, I'm really interested to see what would be the outcome of these talks that they will have uh, or they may have going forward. Okay, so you will you will keep a, a, a hawk's eye on, on, on developments down there in Cape Town and uh, maybe drop oh, by certainly. one of the... Yeah, and drop by one of these days, you know, to to give us an update. Um, and 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 uh, that that is all we have time for for this week uh, on the Sun- Sunday Times Politics Weekly. And I'd like to thank my guests, uh, William, William Kumete, who's the Associate Professor in the School of Governance at Vets University, as well as uh, Andy Suyamakinana, who's our Parliamentary Correspondent based in Cape Town. And by the way, to catch our podcast, you can go to iono.fm, Spotify. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. Uh, Until next time, stay safe, sanitize, wear the mask, and avoid crowded places. My name is Mike Siluma, signing off.